Robbie Martin. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. I probably didn't do a great job of broadcasting this, but uh, we just unlocked two year-old episodes. It's a two-part episode. It's a solo two-parter that I put out a year ago on Media Roots Radio. So we just unlocked those on our Patreon page. If you're already a subscriber to us, like on iTunes or something like that, and you're not a Patreon subscriber, you'll notice that two podcasts just popped up on your feed. That's basically just me counting down my favorite political movies. And I don't just make like a big giant list of them. Uh, It's sort of divided up into genres. So like I have, you know, my top 10 favorite political satires, my top 10 favorite, you know, political sci-fi or horror movies. It's kind of a silly thing, but I had fun doing it. I also got some great movie suggestions from listeners, which was a lot of fun and unexpected. So yeah, check those out. And also make sure to check out our two-part QAnon episode from last month. I was really excited today when I saw that one of my favorite comedians of all time, Tim Heidecker, retweeted our episode. So I feel like I've unlocked some kind of secret level code in life or something. So yeah, I just wanted to brag about that a little bit that... um that I'm glad that uh, that that episode is getting more attention as well. I mean, if if you just want a little Q and on update really quick, well, I'm actually going to do a Q and on update later. So maybe should I do one now? I'll just since I'm talking about Tim Heidecker, I guess I'll just say he actually managed to interview K. W. Miller, the Florida congressional candidate who was obsessed not just with Q and on, like he's a Q and honor, took the oath, all that just like any of these other congressional candidates who are open Q and honors. But he also has like a specific focus on black celebrities involved in the deep state, like Patti LaBelle, Beyonce, and just black people in general he has an obsession with. He's like a white guy from Florida. But today he just tweeted that he thinks that women are into the Black Lives Matter movement because they want to fornicate with black men. So that's where that's what kind of trip this guy's on. And Tim Heidecker actually managed to interview him. And a lot of people were convinced it was a Tim Heidecker character or that like Tim Heidecker hired this guy. And then the account itself, like on Twitter, was run by Tim Heidecker. That doesn't seem to be the case at all. It actually does seem to be real. And the guy, when he was inter- being interviewed by Tim Heidecker on their show Office Hours, he just totally backpedaled and like pretended like he didn't know what Q was. And like whenever Tim would ask him a question, he'd be like, I don't know, Tim, what do you think? It would just got to a very frustrating point where I'm like, dude, what the fuck is this? I don't want to sound too paranoid because I probably, I have different views on Q and on than some other people. I don't think that it's a LARP. I think it's a total con or some kind of psyop, but I think that it's probably on some level connected to the Trump administration. I've been thinking sort of more slightly paranoid thoughts about what's happening with QAnon right now because QAnon hasn't posted since July 2nd after, you know, a few days after our episode came out. A few days actually after Ghislaine Maxwell got arrested. So that got me thinking, you know, why would this congressional candidate K.W. Miller be backpedaling on all the stuff he's blasting on on Twitter about QAnon? Wouldn't he be like proud to talk about it? I mean, I just played a clip of another congresswoman a congressional co- candidate. She's not actually an officer. Actually, wait, maybe she is. 
Okay, I might be wrong. Maybe she actually did get voted in, which is crazy to think that someone, a QAnon, got voted in. But she was totally proud of her little QAnon oath video. And she even like sent a press release to the news saying that her campaign staffers made her take it down. That she actually was like, like bummed out about it. She literally said in response to the press that she was bummed that her campaign made her take it down. So why would someone like K.W. Miller be backpedaling? Well, I, there's other indications too, but um, I'll, I'm going to go into that later. But I do think that there actually might be something more to that other than this dumb, weirdo QAnonor Congress candidate just like not able to stand behind his Twitters, his Twitters on QAnon. I saw something maybe more happening there. And I think Travis View on the Q Anonymous podcast hit on something where he believes there's got to be an internal memo at this point inside the Trump campaign, inside the White House, explaining how to deal with questions about Q or if the issue comes up. Because the press is going to start asking about it soon. And I think he's right. And I think that could speak to something larger happening like a memo going out, maybe even to some of these congressional candidates saying, hey, dial down the Q stuff, like dial it down, dog whistle to it only, or just insinuate it. Don't actually talk about it specifically. That Michael Flynn family Q anon oath, where the entire family stood in front of a fireplace, like a fire pit in their backyard in this creepy video, doing the full Q anon oath, I think that was almost going too far. That kind of blew up QAnon spot. I do think something odd is happening. There's a reason why QAnon hasn't posted since July 2nd. There's a reason why there's this totally crazy conspiracy, another pedogate conspiracy about children being sold in cabinets by this company Wayfair that's totally occupied the space of the QAnoners because QAnon hasn't posted since July 2nd. So somehow another conspiracy has entered the fray, you know, that makes the Ghislaine Maxwell thing, which is real and actually does connect to powerful elites, it makes that thing seem like totally insignificant in comparison. So you do have to wonder, why, why is this appearing now, you know, out of nowhere? And there was actually, uh, there's more shit. I mean, God, I'm already going off on QAnon so much. Um, what a weird way to open the, the, this episode of Media Roots. This is not going to become a QAnon podcast. I promise. I'm not trying to invade on the turf of Q Anonymous is going to continue to be Media Roots Radio as normal, but I have to admit it is, to me, become such an important topic that, I don't know, I'll take back what I just said. Maybe I should do Q Anon updates, you know, every episode now. It's just, because think about it, we're going to be moving into the full swing of this election season soon. There's going to be debates, up, so allegedly, between Biden and Trump, which seems almost unbelievable that those will happen at this point. Or even like that the pandemic is going to allow people to go vote. You know, all these polling places are actually going to be open. That seems unbelievable. Those issues aside, as we move closer to the election here, Trump is going to pull out some crazy... His campaign and his people, the same people that helped get him elected, the same crazy like alt-right people, the Roger Stones, the, the Bannons, they're all going to pull out the same tricks for this election. And I feel like... QAnon could be one of their biggest tricks. What does Trump have left besides this desperate fascist dickwagging that he's been doing? I mean, it seems like it's not achieving the result. It's not getting the hook that he wants it to get. 
Like he likes generating media outcry. And I feel like even that is not happening right now. It's like his handling of the pandemic is what the media is mostly upset about right now the most. But I think it's very, very possible that something QAnon related could be the October surprise. It really could be. And when I say QAnon related, I even mean like the Barr Horowitz report insinuating that Hillary or Obama committed felonies or something in the form of like an official document that validates parts of what Q has been saying so that you almost get that carrot on a stick magnetic effect again where it's like, oh my God, they're, all, they're going to be arrested if Trump wins a second term. Because QAnon this whole time, I mean, almost three years has been dragging this out saying that Obama, Hillary, Comey, all these people are going to be arrested when the deep state goes down. Even some QAnoners now are saying that Hillary and Bill are already executed and that the second term is going to be Trump is going to allow you to watch it on pay-per-view. I mean, that's a more delusional view. But I think a lot of these QAnoners and even regular people now who are getting sucked into the QAnon narrative who might not even realize they are, are actually going to be completely fooled again by something that seems more official, a more official version of the QAnon narrative. Even if it's just Trump validating Q in a way that he's never done before, right before the election, that'll be like a sign that, okay, the second term is going to be the storm. That's going to be it. So they'll drag that carrot on a stick out for as long as possible. But I think that the Q play could be a very devastating and very crazy, chaotic, but actually surprisingly effective play as some kind of weird October surprise bullshit on Trump's side leading up to the election. But I meant to talk about something else when I opened this up. <laughs> something else completely. You know, I'm still doing solo duties on the podcast while Abby is having a blast with their brand new, beautiful little baby. And hello, Abby and Mike, if you're listening. Love you guys. Um, but I realize that it's been a while since Media Roots Radio has just done a roundup or, you know, like just commentary on what's been in the news recently or just current events. Um, I know we've had guests on and we've sort of maybe talked We've zoomed out from some of those current events and more just talked about the larger issues that surround them. But I wanted to just talk about what's happening right now um, in general and the political dialogue. Obviously, a lot of what's still happening is the same craziness uh, that's been happening for months. Um, mostly with the pandemic, things still feel extremely chaotic and uncertain. Um, just in a psychological sense, I still think most people on some level are feeling this to a certain degree. Even if you're feeling completely comfortable and at home and if you can afford to not be, have to go out, you're very lucky if you're one of those people. But I think even those people are feeling this uncertainty, psychological stress. Some people more than others. I mean, obviously, the economically disadvantaged are feeling it much worse. Um, people who even have to continue to work in environments where they can be easily exposed to COVID. Um, people who can't afford to get their groceries delivered through Instacart, which is, you know, the overwhelming majority of the population here. There's all different levels of stress to this situation. And while this, you know, even though the actual predictions were a little overblown in terms of like how many people were going to die, the infection 
or the mortality rate of COVID-19, this is still going to be a, a generationally defining issue. There's just no way around that at this point. Things have been shut down for this long. It's completely changed television, entertainment. You know, everyone's doing things from Skype now. You know, and the economic catastrophe that's already happening, but that I think everybody is facing here in the U.S. The stock market, you know, seems like it got stabilized, but only because it got artificially injected with all this capital. We are facing a major, major crash of the economy. Not, I mean, not just the American economy, but also parts of the global economy. I, I think one th positive thing, maybe, if you've been a listener of this podcast, and this Am idea of American exceptionalism, or this Amer idea of American moral superiority, or even an idea of America having this special first world, you know, status. Like we pride ourselves in all these all these things that I think really shield us from the painful reality that America on some level has become this sort of massive corporate sacrifice zone. And I know that maybe sound crazy or like really extreme, but how else can you explain to people what America is the whole time it's been pretending to be something else when this is really the final full exposure to the world that America is some kind of authoritarian oligopoly sacrifice zone posing as some kind of shining example for the rest of the world dictating how the rest of the world should behave. I mean, it's kind of the final reckoning of the United States, not just in terms of it having this status, but also like its geopolitical standing, like the idea of the American empire. I was actually not a believer in this idea that the American empire was in decline or that the, the American world order that it helped create after World War II, as Robert Kagan calls it, was actually on decline. I thought it was all sort of a ruse, meaning like that the neocons maybe maybe saw a projection of it eventually declining and they wanted to sort of stave it off years and years in advance. But I feel that this situation and even the dynamic with China, it really is showing us that the American empire is showing really serious cracks. I mean, even just on a credibility level, it's one thing to act like you're the most powerful military in the world and you can tell any other country what to do, but you can't necessarily do that as effectively if you're like letting all of your own people die at the same time. There's sort of an irregularity there that it's like the moral, yeah, you can maybe strong arm people like completely authoritarian, like Nazi Germany style you know, into just bending to your will, invading countries, taking over territory. But that's not how America generally works. But that speaks to maybe that might, might be how it's going to work if it gets so desperate when it sees the, you know, the fading empire in more relief than it is now. There's no denying that America is now being seen by the rest of the world as some kind of failed state. Dep I mean, you may not see it that way yet, other people you know may not see it that way yet, but the rest of the world, I think, is seeing it that way. And sort of the glue and the plaster and these little pieces of tape holding this balsa wood structure together is 
about to completely implode. There's this whole other, you know, ugly issue that's really come to a head, and it's the issue of racism and policing. Black Lives Matter came back with serious energetic force after the killing of George Floyd. You know, the corporations and woke neoliberal celebs and, and media class all acted like they had this extremely intense solidarity with this protest movement, making those videos saying, I'm sorry, those black and white videos. And I think just as long as the movement kept things really, really peaceful, meaning no property destruction, no fires, no windows being broken, you know, nothing actually really threatening. And I'm not saying that that has to happen to be threatening. I mean, in general, the attitude of the movement couldn't be threatening. And that's why I think this sort of mainstream class has gone along with it. And they also don't want to be seen as being racist in the Trump era. Things have become really polarized, but it's not genuine. So when you remove all this sort of fake, woke, corporate solidarity noise, uh, it still is very clear that the discontentness in this country about inequality around race and even, I think, the economic disparity. And I think that that maybe hasn't fully come out yet, but I think it's going to eventually. I mean, these things had grown to explosive levels. But we also saw an equal and opposite sort of powerful counter-reaction of people, mostly right-wingers, declaring this movement fascist, you know, dogmatic. It was a violent new religion that was apparently, you know, so threatening that if you defied it, you would be quote-unquote canceled you know, at, at best, and then like beaten up at worst. So, and I think it was, you know, it wasn't just right-wingers, as I discussed with Eugene Perrier on the last episode of Media Roots. It was also a host of popular and established writers, intellectuals, and even f famous academics who are known for their left-wing views, like Noam Chomsky. So Noam Chomsky is appearing side-by-side -side as a signatory with Bush neocon war criminal, David Frum, in a Harper's letter, suggesting that cancel culture had gone too far, directly in the middle of an incredibly powerful resurgence of a racial solidarity movement. Perhaps an odd choice to do the timing, uh, but this letter was used as sort of an example of, see, even Noam Chomsky agrees that, you know, cancel culture has gone too far. What say you, leftist? that's still going. And I guess what I would say to it is I think Noam Chomsky has to be absolutely out of his fucking mind to sign anything, even a, a bill for a, a meal at a restaurant with David Frum. Like what on earth was he thinking? Barry Weiss? I think even Anne-Marie Slaughter signed that letter. It's like, I, I think he's lost his mind if that's what he would sign. So it's almost like completely out of the realm of concern of mine that somehow Noam Chomsky, this principled guy, would sign it, put his name to this. I mean, I, I'm just blown away. And then this whole staged resignation by Barry Weiss after she signs this letter too, because she claims she got bullied. And it's like, this thing is just like an op wrapped in an op. I mean, come on. The letter itself, once you have neocons signing on to cancel culture solidarity letters saying we need to stop cancel culture the you know black lives matter has gone too far that's essentially what they're saying 
then that's weaponized. You know, so if you're against the weaponization of identity politics for like neoliberal purposes, like people like Greenwald and Taibbi are, then you should also be against people like Barry Weiss and David Frum sort of weaponizing the concept of cancel culture or like pushing back against cancel culture. There's also a really insidious usefulness in doing that, especially when you have the same people like pushing it who actually called for people's firing for being anti-Israel or an anti-the Iraq war. So why use that letter? So, you know, if you want to have the debate about cancel culture and you think that's a problem, then have it without like propping up or revolving your arguments around this stupid letter that's obviously a fucking op. David Frum? I mean, come on. You have all these people also who are claiming that they're not alt-right, that they're like classical liberals. People like Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert and Tim Poole, you know, who's basically, I mean, they're they're completely right wing. They're it's not even a it's not even a debate if they're liberal or not. So they pretend that they're not, but what's really wild is that like half of Tim Pool's videos for the past, I don't know, three months seem to be all about how civil war is coming. And when you actually watch these videos of him where he's talking about this, one of them, he says civil war is around the corner because the army goes full far left in his title. The U.S. Army, Tim Pool is saying, goes full far left because a memo that was published by mistake at one U.S. military base about a new racial equality program that they wanted to like help train people in the army with was somehow proof that the U.S. Army, I mean, I guess it doesn't matter that Trump is the commander-in-chief, was about to become some kind of leftist force to shut down conservative thought. And then you have Scott Adams literally saying, you know, it's one, okay, like I've actually had to try to get out of the habit of reading people's tweets. Like Scott Adams says, like Republicans are going to be hunted if Biden wins this election. So when I read that tweet, I'm like, oh my God, that's so hyperbolic. These people, what do they actually really say? What would he really say if you asked him about that? Or is he just like putting his most hyperbolic thought on Twitter? Because Twitter does that to people. Twitter is sort of a exaggerated version of what you're thinking sometimes. But no, it turns out Scott Adams literally 100% completely articulates in the most eloquent fashion why he thinks he will be hunted and other Republicans will be hunted like, like, like the purge if Biden gets elected. And he went on about it for about a minute and a half on a podcast that you can watch a video clip of. So I, I don't know. I mean, these people, Tim Poole and Scott Adams, who think there's going to be a civil war and keep talking about it. I don't know. It, it kind of almost seems like the Freudian concept of manifesting your fears. These type of people, to me, seem like they're more likely to be on like a hair trigger and do some stupid shit. Because I could tell you that a lot of people on the left that I know, even though a lot of people on the left, even some of the ones who think Trump is a total fascist and that things are going to get really bad or it could get worse. I don't think any of them are like 
thinking that there's going to be a civil war coming. And honestly, I think that they should start worrying about it after hearing this stupid bullshit combined with QAnon, because that's a whole other side of it. I mean, combine it with QAnon actually asking Trump supporters to take the oath. That's taking, evolving what is already a dangerous movement of mentally unstable militant MAGAs into something that could be turned into a flash mob to cause chaos or whatever the fuck it wants to do. I mean, and let's get back to the election for a second. I was talking about the fact that there might not even be a debate between Biden and Trump. There might not even be regular in-person voting. Will we even have an election in November? I mean, will Trump get increasingly desperate and amp up his rhetorical war against the left and China, and now he's even doing it against MS-13? I think yes. I mean, there's been... How many people will be unemployed by November? How many businesses will be closed by November? So if politics right now in this country were even remotely for the people, even rhetorically, wouldn't the only issues that mattered in this election, the primary issues be getting universal basic income to get us through this and some form of universal health care and actually effectively curtailing the pandemic in some like useful and scientifically sound, non-politically driven way. I mean, obviously, so many other issues are still obviously important. But to zoom out and think of how far the current election debates are from those extremely pressing issues that we, that we need to address right now, it's very, very depressing how much we're being manipulated. And I even feel sorry for conservatives. Like, I can empathize somewhat with the sort of conservatives who latched on to the idea that we need to protest lockdowns. Not like go out there and physically protest them. I think a lot of that maybe have been astroturfed. But the general concept of thinking the government can't force us to stay home. That's a totally reasonable thought to have. I I mean, I, I so I empathize with that. But I feel sorry for conservatives who seem to have been driven into this fake debate now that's completely phony it just seems to be completely against their own interests of first believing that the virus is not at all a problem, like that it's not dangerous, that it's mostly a hoax. I mean, that one maybe can be explained by more just conspiratorial, sort of QAnon, typical conspiracy thinking that everything's got to be a hoax or a false flag. So that maybe makes more sense. But the mask thing, that masks are dangerous or that they're a conspiracy to make you wear a, some kind of burqa or hide your emotions or control you or get you to be in line, that the mask issue has actually become some issue that people revolve around to protest against that are conservative. I feel sorry for those people because I believe they're literally being riled up by like artificial conspiracies designed to just like distract them away from worrying about their own interests. Not only is it exposing them to the virus more, but it also just distracts them away from like wondering when, um, you know, the next twelve hundred dollar check from the Trump administration is going to come in, or when, you know, we're going to have um, some kind of real tr effective treatment for COVID nineteen. Uh, there's so many pressing issues that obviously I can't cover them all, 
on this podcast today. So I guess I'd just like to break down a bunch of things that I haven't had a chance to talk about since um the you know maybe the last episode with Abby and I together. So I know I already like ranted for about ten minutes about Q, but I have some more stuff that I wanted to talk to you guys about. Um, so I guess I just wanted to say thank you for everybody who subscribed to Media Roots Radio Patreon. Um, after the Q and On episode came out, uh, it really heartens me considering um that sort of over the years our podcast has moved away from sort of the conspiracy stuff to take on more serious stuff uh but it heartens me to know that um since sort of q and on could be arguably described as both of those at this point that uh people were really interested in what what the breakdown was that media roots was going to do about it so i thought it was kind of perfect timing to get that out there and the media is really talking about it again. So it's it's really in the news again. There's more stories in the last two weeks about QAnon than there has been in the last two years, easily. Like mainstream media or like outlets like the Daily Beast, those kind of places. Just some things that I didn't have a chance to talk about in my QAnon episode since they happened afterwards. But you guys saw that video uh, that I think the woman was streaming on Periscope of her destroying the mask display at Target saying... I'm sick of this fucking shit. Well, you know what I'm going to do if I'm sick of it? I'm going to, I'll do this. And she just starts like, she's filming herself breaking this mass display. And it's clearly a stunt. She didn't like, you know, she wasn't like filming something and then saw the mass display and got angry. It was like a total stunt. She probably went to Target just to film it like a psychopath. And when I say a mass display, I mean like a face covering mask display that sells face coverings in Target. Like, it's not just these crazy conservatives have been, like, wagged like dogs into actually believing that that masks are actually harmful for you. They've actually gone to the point of, like, wanting to destroy and ruin masks for other people. Like, wow. So, did you guys happen to see the second half of that video? where this woman actually periscopes her arrest because the cops come. She just destroyed a display in a store and walked out. Cops uh, came to her house, and she started periscoping again. And uh, did you guys hear what she said? She actually told the police that she was the official QAnon spokesperson and that the police needed to call Donald Trump immediately because he would help basically explain to the police that she didn't do anything wrong. It's all part of the plan. Um, that's not all, uh, more violent incidents and, and then, you know, like there has been a spike in media attention, it's also because there has been a spike in violent and bizarre incidents involving Q and honors. So there's sort of a, it's not just the Flynn oath, which was really crazy that a military general would like do that with his whole family on video. I mean, that cannot be understated how insane that is, how dangerous and crazy that is. What if Q and honors somehow eventually think Flynn is a pedo and they come to his house? I mean, it just, it just seems really risky unless Q and on somehow has some kind of connection to the Trump people and they can trust whoever's doing it. 
that actually makes more sense to me. Justin Trudeau, good old uh, what are the what are the what are the conspiracy people used to say about him that he was Castro's like bastard child or something? Fidel Castro's child. Uh, so good old Justin Trudeau, Trudeau, um, had his uh, estate um, invaded by a pickup truck of a QAnon supporter who drove his truck into the metal front gates of uh, his residence in Canada. And this man was arrested. And it was later discovered that he was a QAnon supporter and that that was his reason for doing it. Um, Donald Trump, actually in a single day, the day happened to be July 4th, tweeted out over 15 different retweets of QAnon accounts. This cannot be an accident. This cannot be a coincidence at this point. There are plenty of regular conservative Twitter account Trump supporters out there who are not QAnon people who don't use QAnon hashtags. There are also plenty of QAnon accounts out there who are very pro-Trump who make their QAnon support like really aggressive and overt. So what's really notable to me about Trump only tweeting these certain accounts is there's an odd strategy behind it. I know this is going to sound like I'm saying Trump is playing 3D chess. I'm not. I'm saying that someone is actually telling Trump which QAnon accounts to retweet, and they're making sure that there are accounts that have the hashtags that are not necessarily overtly, like, so if a regular mainstream media journalist sees it, they won't know it's like some kind of QAnon conspiracy theory thing. They'll just see it and think it's like a MAGA Trump account. Only people who understand those hashtags will understand it. So it's, again, it's meant to signal directly to them, but not tip off sort of the masses. And I think that that's a deliberate strategy. So the fact that Trump is tweeting these kind of accounts out is absolutely nuts. It speaks to a deliberate strategy. It speaks to something very scary and and very, very shocking that I don't think the media is shocked enough about. I saw Parker Malloy. Um, I don't really know her track record as a journalist, so I, I don't really have an opinion on her either way. But I saw her saying that the press isn't ready for QAnon on Twitter. She, I think she interviewed Travis View from QAnonymous, and she basically tweeted, you know, she understood the danger of it. She was clearly, uh, you know, fully aware of how dangerous it could be. But the statement that the press isn't ready for it, to me, is utterly absurd. The press has willfully ignored this. The press has chosen to spend all this energy on a fake conspiracy of Russiagate, their own version of, not their own version of QAnon. I think that's sort of a reductive take that I've seen people saying that like, oh, the Russiagators on the, you know, the left are just as crazy as the QAnoners on the right. No. The Russiagators, yeah, they're a problem. They got into some really dangerous conspiratorial thinking. Russiagate or the Russia hysteria could lead to you know, uh, a war with Russia. Those are really scary scenarios. But to say that the people who bought into that are as crazy as the people who believe that we need martial law to arrest John Podesta, you got to be out of your fucking mind. That's an extremely stupid false equivalency. There is a whole other level of like militant mental illness with QAnoners. There's just no comparison. So, yeah, I mean, I know it's fun to be like, yeah, the left and right are the same. They both have their crazy conspiracy theories. No, it's absolutely not the same at all. Absolutely not. I can actually empathize with some people who got sucked into the Russiagate thing. Even though I never did, 
and I knew it was bullshit because the mainstream media was shoving it down their throats. QAnon is an anonymous 4chan poster. It doesn't even make sense. At least it makes sense on some level why the media pushing the same narrative would brainwash certain people into believing it. You know, you trust what you believe from the news and from these politicians. But it just it, just, uh, it defies logic how a 4chan, 8chan, 8kun poster could gain this much credibility and, and keep a conspiracy thing going this long. Trump actually later tweeted out a video. There are actually two videos, I, I should add. And then in the following days after the 4th of July, he tweeted out what appeared to be a boat pro-MAGA rally in some kind of river or estuary, a flash mob of pro-MAGA boat guys, like with their speedboats and their big, you know, boats, like water skiing boats or whatever, all hanging out, waving um, Trump flags, MAGA 2020. And the actual guy who organized this event is uh, a QAnoner, and he has a QAnon flag waving behind his boat. And Trump tweets out this video of this guy, this QAnon organizer of this flash mob event. He tweets it out on his Twitter, the guy being interviewed on the news about how much he loves Trump. A couple days later, Trump tweeted out a video of a guy who had mowed into his lawn a giant Trump 2020 logo and then dyed part of his lawn like a, like a color to make it look like a political sign, like blue. I don't know however they do that. Like they do that in like like sports games where they dye parts of the grass. Like whatever that is, that this dude did that and like drew a giant Trump campaign sign. He's on the news being interviewed about it and he's wearing a Q shirt, QAnon shirt. Trump retweets the video of the guy on the news wearing a QAnon shirt. Um, this is a little bit unclear but apparently according to raw story and they did some like updates and um addendums to their story but apparently a QAnon believing mother encouraged her child to go to a covid party like kind of like a chicken pox party where you want your kid to get infected um and apparently the child later died i don't know the full details of it that's a very sad story well whatever parker malloy's point was about how the press is not ready for this I don't think they're going to be ready for it. I think it's honestly, it's too late for the mainstream media to have any useful effect on this. I don't, I don't know how anybody could stop it at this point, honestly. I really, I mean, I don't, I don't want to fear monger, but I, I am concerned about where this is going to go and how it is kind of unstoppable. I mean, Q Anonymous is trying to warn people that, you know, they have been taking it very seriously. They're trying to warn people now more overtly and they're, you know, encouraging more people to take it seriously, like Media Matters and other organizations. But it's crazy to me that more people, I haven't really seen anybody say, you know, I saw a Newsweek article the other day saying this is how Trump could stay in office if he loses. And it went through all these sort of things about legal loopholes that William Barr could do you know, if, if Trump claims voter fraud and mail-in ballots for voting. But what was weird is the Newsweek article didn't mention anything about QAnon, and I just don't understand how nobody in the media yet has just said out loud, wow, you know, Trump could really use this QAnon thing to stay in office if he loses. Or, wow, Trump could actually use this QAnon thing to start mass violence or chaos 
to me, it's a ridiculous omission that a mainstream reporter would write an article at this point called How Trump Could Lose the Election and Still Remain President. It's by two writers, Timothy E. Worth and Tom Rogers. It's in Newsweek. How could how they could write this article and not mention this sort of conspiracy movement of Trump loyalists who just took an oath? I mean, like, it just seems so integral to that idea. So there's a Twitter user who I think really summed it up quite nicely. His name is Penial Gland Decalcifier Handle at Saud at Sad Clown esque ESQ. He says this is explicitly this explicitly is an oath for quote unquote digital soldiers, presumably for peaceably fighting mainstream media narratives by posting memes. The imperative by Q has gone from trust the plan and eat your popcorn to you have a duty to your country to fulfill a mission. I don't think it's overdramatic to be concerned about the possibility of an increase in stochastic acts of violence, especially now that Q, who has previously encouraged followers to wait and see, has now asked them to, quote, take an oath and join the fight. So I just wanted to mention this really quickly, too. People in Washington, D.C. and in this Beltway culture and even part of these generic political campaigns, the DNC, Media Matters, they've known about QAnon for like over a year. I think maybe in part they're maybe afraid to touch it or talk about it because it sounds too crazy. They don't know how to talk about it. I don't think I've ever said this on the podcast before, but I got contacted by somebody who was affiliated with the Media Matters DNC people. And they said very clearly to me that what proof do you have, what is your best like evidence do you have that QAnon is related to the Trump campaign or, or connected somehow? And this was a year ago. And I asked them, well, why? Like, why is this, are, is there something, is Media Matters like actually taking this idea seriously? Because at the time there was almost no writings about it at all. So I was trying to fish, I was like asking this person questions back if they're claiming to be some if somehow affiliated with these organizations. Their response was that basically people at Media Matters and in the DNC are scared of this. They know what it is. They don't know how to address it. And they also don't know how to convince necessarily the, their public audience that Trump is part of this. They haven't figured out a way. This was a, this was a year ago. They hadn't figured out a way to convince people of that, even though they actually believed it on some kind of gut level, just like I, you know, it's not maybe not even a gut level. Maybe this, some of these like media matters people were doing super deep dives a year ago and just hid the fact that they were. Maybe they just kept it private. I don't know. I don't. I don't have any love for media matters. I think it's a, you know, mostly a BS organization that occasionally does some of the people do good work sometimes, but I think maybe someone from there saw. Some of the stuff I was doing with Alex Jones, that I interviewed Kelly Jones, I don't know how I got on their radar, but at one point they used one of my tweets about Alex Jones in like an article of theirs. Someone did. So I wasn't entirely surprised when the person from this organization reached out to me and asked me like about my QAnon ideas or like what I've found in my research. But ultimately what worries me is that it's been a year later 
I've already known that people from those organizations were taking it seriously privately, but they can't, they still can't figure out a way to address it now. It could be Trump's ace in a hole. I know it sounds crazy that he's going to pull a QAnon for the election, but like campaign slogan for Trump 2020, when we go one, we go all. How surprised would you be at this point if Trump's campaign commercial had the phrase, when we go one, we go all in it? Would you fall out of your chair? Would you be like, oh, nope, totally, totally knew it, called it? I mean, honestly, I know it sounds ridiculous, but it's, it, we're so, this is just such a ridiculous era. It's like the, anything could happen. This doesn't seem that far out of the realm of possibility. It actually seems plausible. Not him putting those little words in a campaign commercial, but the idea that Trump could actually use Q as an October surprise. And, and Roger Stone just got a sentence commuted. Why hasn't Q posted since July 2nd? What is Q waiting for? You know, why did Q post a bunch of pictures of Ghislaine Maxwell with Clinton and then make it seem like Clinton is a child molester and didn't talk about anyone else? When we know that there's tons of pictures of Ghislaine Maxwell with right-wingers, with Trump's people, with Trump, Whitney Webb even revealed that Ghislaine Maxwell apparently used to recruit girls, Trump's ex-wife Ivanka, for Epstein at high schools. So, if you didn't already hear, Ghislaine Maxwell, Epstein's sort of partner in crime, daughter of intelligence-connected media mogul Robert Maxwell, and sibling of the woman who invented the first commercial search engine, who was alleged to have regularly procured Underage girls as quasi-sex slaves in an elite, elaborate sex trafficking scheme and blackmail scheme involving dozens of powerful politicians, famous celebrities. She has been charged. What are her charges? Surprisingly, not that severe on paper. The media hysteria surrounding it, I mean, even in alt media, pretty intense. It's sort of like the Epstein conspiracy stuff all over again. To talk about her suicide, you know, her future suicide happening already, you know, is being constantly repeated. Um, police put her in a jail cell with nothing to hang herself, kind of quasi-suicide watch. She actually was denied bail. They said that she's a flight risk. It was revealed that she had her cell phone wrapped in tinfoil when she was arrested. Um, rumors are circulating, and uh, even Dershowitz addressed them. In a, in a series of bizarre tweets he made, that Ghislaine Maxwell actually has videotapes hidden somewhere of at least two very, very famous and high-level politicians having intercourse with underage girls. And not just those two videos, but like many other videos of other politicians engaging in group sex or orgies. So will this actually amount to anything serious for any elites or, or major politicians like Prince Andrew Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, Alan Dershowitz, Ehud Barak. I'm personally not holding out that this is going to result in anything serious. Even if she survives prison, I don't... I think that elites have the interest of protecting themselves, and I don't think that this situation provided a means for certain people to be thrown under the bus in sort of a political way. I feel like it's all or nothing at this point. 
if she's going to sing and talk about things, it's going to like take down all, a lot of people potentially. But I guess we'll see. There is a Ghislaine Maxwell connection actually to Wayfair, this company Wayfair, and the company had to release some statement about it. So this company Wayfair, you know, has been the center of this new conspiracy theory that seems to be all Q supporters and Q big Q people pushing it. So why did this sort of Q adjacent conspiracy explode right when Maxwell seems like she's about to sing? Could it be a deliberate distraction? Um, like how Pizzagate was possibly a distraction from the fact that Trump could have raped kids with Epstein? Um, I mean, I don't know. It seems really sus to me. It also seems really sus that people like Cassandra Fairbanks, who claims not to be a QAnon supporter anymore, is pushing it. It seems really sus to me that Fallen Gong, Epoch Times, Epic Times funded Edge of Wonder show is all over the Wayfair conspiracy thing. I think it's just kind of a fucking game for these people. You know, if Trump is dog whistling to Q at an exponential rate, why wouldn't these Trump plant grifters also start dog whistling to Q at an increased rate? Even if they pretend they don't support Q. Even if they've acted like, oh, Q is crazy. But yeah, check out this Wayfair conspiracy thing. You can buy a uh, missing kid in a cabinet. I mean, that's a game they're playing there. Just like it might be the same game the Trump administration is playing by not overtly tweeting these QAnon accounts and making it more subtle, where it's just a hashtag. Gumby for Christ on Twitter found a uh, New Yorker profile of uh, Donald Trump in 1997. Um, Trump flies down to uh, Mar-a-Lago with Ghislaine Maxwell on Trump's private jet. You know, you got to be pretty close to someone to fly with them, I think, on a, on a jet plane. And apparently she was just bumming a ride. You know, it wasn't to go anywhere specific. She was just bumming a ride. Bumming a ride straight to some kind of child sex trafficking operation that was probably likely taking place for many years on Trump's property, Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, probably. Even though the Epstein um, property was also in Palm Beach, which isn't too far away from Mar-a-Lago, which is also kind of sus. You know, that Epstein was probably running a lot of his women through this Mar-a-Lago resort. It's a private resort. You can rent rooms. You know, the private nature of it also maybe shielded him a little more from it. The idea that Trump kicked Epstein out of his resort when he found out that he apparently raped an underage girl is hilarious. It's a cover story. Clearly, Trump was deeply involved in this shit. Anyone who believes that Trump is some kind of hero that needs to save kids is a fucking moron. You have to be the stupidest motherfucker alive to believe that Trump cares about saving the children. He let his son, when his son was like five years old, hang out with Michael Jackson for like a whole day by himself. Does that sound like a dad that cares about saving the kids? Who would put Don Jr., little American psycho Jr., in the crosshairs of a serial child molester? Doesn't sound like someone who cares about kids to me. Or someone who actually talks about how his toddler daughter is going to have huge tits when she grows up and talks about how the thing that he has most in common with Ivana is sex. I mean, also, let's talk about Elon Musk getting destroyed on Twitter for the Ghislaine Maxwell stuff. You know, he called someone a pedo, right? He called a cave diver rescuing children, like an actual guy who was like putting his life on the line to rescue those Thai kids in that cave. Elon Musk said he was a pedo guy. 
because the guy talked shit about Elon Musk's dumbass submarine that wouldn't have worked anyways. Elon Musk is a psychopath. Of course that shit wouldn't have worked, you fucking dumbass. But Elon Musk got destroyed on Twitter after people started trolling him with pictures of Ghislaine and him like with their arms around each other. But that's not the end of it. Elon consulted with Epstein after Epstein's child sex conviction. He hired Epstein as a consultant for Tesla. And apparently Epstein set up Elon's brother with his now girlfriend. So if that's not enough, um, Elon's dad is actually married to his own stepdaughter. This shit is really crazy. And just on a side note, what's fun is I'm not the only one who thinks Elon Musk is a loathsome, boring piece of shit. But Johnny Depp apparently hates him too. And it came out in his divorce uh, proceedings that he actually calls Elon Musk Mollusk and uh, wants to chop off his penis. And Johnny Depp in a text message said that he wants to show Elon Musk, a.k.a. Mollusk, the other side of his dick. And I, I'm assuming that means that the other side, like that side that was cut, sliced. So, uh, yeah, Johnny. I don't know, man. I mean, I don't want to talk shit about Johnny Depp. Seems rather trivial, but a lot of that stuff coming out in his divorce records, like what is Johnny Depp's deal? Why was he so jealous about who Amber Heard had fucked? What a weird... I just can't imagine a celebrity of his stature being that jealous unless he's got something like wrong happening sexually so you guys obviously know about that russian bounty u.s troop story that the russian government is actually offering to pay bounties to taliban or afghan militias who want to kill american soldiers let's just cut to the chase i'll just say right up front who i think is doing this yes it is some faction of the national security class you know the same little group of crazed Russia gators that you know the right thinks is the entirety of the deep state or is the deep state, which they're not. They're actually a lot of them aren't even technically in government anymore. But people keep fucking that chicken about that narrative that it's Trump versus the deep state. You know that cartoonish, stupid bullshit. But the Lincoln Project came onto the scene, started by all these sort of Bush era neocons and neoliberals and this guy named Rick Wilson who's tried to rebrand as a liberal even though he has a confederate flag cooler and he called Obama Putin's bitch and said, you know, and his friends from the Lincoln Project say that if, uh, you know, he was there, he would have shot Michael Brown himself. If he was Darren Wilson, he would have held the gun. Uh, Rick Wilson's tweeting things about how he wants to see blood dripping from the side of a Muslim person's temple. These people are psychopath, neocon, genocidal monsters. And here they are trying to rebrand themselves because Trump is such a fucking monster. They know that they can try to do this, you know, just like George W. Bush has rebranded himself. It's just like, oh, Trump is saying this crazy shit and acting this crazy and saying the virus is a hoax and just on a daily basis just saying the ugliest crap ever well then i can rebrand myself i'm a monster but i appear or i know how to act civilized and trump seemingly can't so i'm just gonna rebrand myself now even though i'm like a serial killer basically rick wilson yes i'm talking to you you dalmer motherfucker these people who started the Lincoln Project, you know, one of their first major blows, salvos against the Trump campaign, was a, a commercial with hammer and sickles and Russian music showing Trump butting up to Putin. 
It's like, dude, we're like eight months out of the Mueller report being over. Oh, okay. So you're trying to, re this is the election play is trying to resurrect the Russiagate stuff. So that ad came out like last month. And then maybe like two weeks after that, this Russian bounty story came out and it seemed to also come out around the same time that allegedly Trump was planning on withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. I don't necessarily believe that Trump was that serious about doing this. A lot of people are running with that narrative. So this story, apparently, it was very coordinated. It blasted out on like 10 media outlets, all from anonymous intelligence sources. But it actually came from the intelligence sources it came from, later reported like a week later, didn't even come from our own U.S. intelligence services. They came from Afghanistan intelligence. So back to this idea that, you know, some Republicans joined with some Democrats after this story came out to make it more difficult to pull troops out of Afghanistan. And apparently Trump was working his way toward seriously doing that, even though he's never followed through multiple times on these claims of wanting to remove troops. I, in my opinion, a lot of dumb analysis came out saying that the Democrats were basically standing in the way of Trump trying to end the war in Afghanistan. And that this story was planted by the deep state to stop him from pulling troops out. I don't think that's not how I see it at all. I think honestly, it was just the same as the Lincoln Project. Just the same as the Lincoln Project. It was intelligence agency connected morons who were doing those dumb Russia Gatey commercials. They might have even planted this story or gotten this story to float just to resurrect the Russia Gate rhetoric for the 2020 election. I don't even think, honestly, the Afghanistan war, staying there to these people, How I mean, maybe these people really desperately want us to stay there the, from the Lincoln Project. Maybe they do. But I think they're more interested in resurrecting some cheap talking points for the 2020 election. And planting a media story like this brings all that stuff up again and makes it seem real again. Even though the Mueller report said a lot of the, the idea that Trump was colluding with Russia was not proven in that report my argument is if trump was serious about withdrawing troops from afghanistan he would find ways to do it and i don't just mean like find ways to actually do it put it into action i mean find ways to rally the people to do it so you notice he'll just throw these things out and try to stick it at the wall and all these like writers or some of them are even on the left will be like look trump really wants to pull out troops from afghanistan look it's like dude he just like said that as an aside at some press conference and We've gotten some leak from the Pentagon saying that he's making movements to do that. But like, if he's in any way serious about withdrawing troops of Afghanistan, why doesn't he do like a, a a large part of the State of the Union about it or do a whole speech about it? That's what would happen if he was actually serious about it. So this idea that he's trying to be anti-war and the deep state keeps stop, stopping him, it's just babyishly false at this point. It's very clearly laid out as being false. And Abby's new Empire Files show, showing the continuity between all presidents since Bush and Trump on Afghanistan. This is all laid out. And I even saw people sharing Abby's Empire Files episode, saying the Democrats are trying to stop Trump from withdrawing troops. And it's like, dude, did you even watch this episode? Abby made it very, very clear to show that Trump is not serious about withdrawing troops from Afghanistan and has done everything he could actually to escalate the war. So please stop leaning on this reductive bullshit framing. And then someone will, you know, people will say to me, well, then why did the neocons hate him so much in the election? 
I don't know, dude. I mean, they probably hate him for a lot of reasons, but that's not, you can't draw a line from that to this and say the neocons hate him because he was going to end the wars and he's serious about ending the wars in Afghanistan. Like I said, if he was serious about doing it, we'd see a more serious reflection of that on his behalf. Also, why would the Afghanistan or Taliban insurgents need a bounty to do something they already love doing that is super easy to do? Picking off American soldiers in this foreign landscape that we're, they're totally unequipped for. They're basically children running around in this rocky desert getting picked off by like snipers who are like, oh, great, we can just like take out another soldier super easily. These people are super weak. They have no skills on fighting against us. So if the premise is even remotely true that some Russian official tried to do this, because I can't believe it would be like coming directly from Putin, even if this happened, it's extremely unlikely. It's only happening now, right now, in the Trump era, and it wasn't already happening under Obama or for the whole duration of the war. So the premise that Trump is somehow emboldening Russia to do this, but I mean... If Trump was really emboldening Russia that much, why hasn't Putin taken more of Ukraine as territory like Crimea? Why hasn't Putin done all these things that the neocons said that he was going to do? If Trump really has emboldened Putin this much, it just doesn't, you take all these narratives together, there's, it's just a lot of lies. That's basically what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine a world where all my favorite writers and sort of left thinkers would have been talking about the Republicans restricting Obama's apparently genuine plans to remove all the troops from Iraq and Afghanistan. Trying to imagine a world where that would happen and me just cringing. So the rhetorical framing to me in which so many smart people paint Trump's desire to end wars or pull out troops as genuine and serious is utterly fucking bizarre and i am it's super alien to me at this point i'm just like dude what fucking planet are you on he dropped a moab in afghanistan that's like right under a nuke are you crazy to think that he's anti-war what is wrong with you how did you get conned how did you get fucking conned by this and i'm sorry if you are still conned out there listening but just go watch abby's empire files thing just go watch how many people he's bombed, how many civilians he's killed. He's a mass murderer. To think that Trump has some kind of anti-war bone in his body and that he didn't just jump on the bandwagon to go against the Iraq war like everybody else did, I, I just can't believe you would buy into that. Trump is a con man who conned you, I guess. And I'm genuinely sorry if that happened. But thankfully, I think most of the people listening to this podcast know that that is a reductive narrative. They know that that's not true. I mean, we didn't even get a chance to talk about John Bolton yet, hardly at all. I mean, he tries to create all these dents in the Trump administration. He gets a bunch of, um, you know, mainstream media spots, and then he seems to dry those up really quickly. They start, stop coming, and then he's just scraping the bottom of the barrel like a fucking loser, you know, like appearing on these local affiliate AM radio talk shows to say all the same stupid shit. And then he's treated like a resistance hero for a few days uh, by the mainstream media. And then, uh, and then he just goes back to being the normal, idiotic, boring sack of shit that he is. So ultimately, it didn't really have any effect. I mean, he didn't testify at the impeachment hearing, which is when it would have actually had an effect. But he drops a few things in that actually make Trump you know, seem actually smart and funny if they're actually true. 
the things that he releases in the book include that Trump called Juan Guaido the Beto O'Rourke of Venezuela, <laughs> and then he thought he was too weak, and that Maduro was strong, and then he wasn't like he wasn't wasn't strong enough to lead like Maduro. I'm almost willing to believe that that sounds like Trump, and he is, and Juan Guaido kind of is the Beto O'Rourke of Venezuela. Look at him, he's like a flake, like a total puppet flake. <laughs> Hilarious and Maduro, it's true. My Maduro does look stronger. He's like got a mustache. If you're just Trump looking at this through your cartoon reality show lens, like, yeah, Maduro looks like a strong dude. He looks like he's like wearing like a military outfit. He's got a mustache. <laughs> so back to bashing these classical liberal people again who pretend to somehow still be on the left when they're actually just right wing grifters at this point. Let's talk about someone who's newly graduated to what I would describe as full Quillette borderline right-wing grifter status. I, I don't think it's fair to call Michael Tracy a Nazi. A lot of people have been calling him that for years. I think it's more like his evolution is complete to getting mugged by reality. Mike Tracy, just like Irving Kristol, got scared, nervous about the strength and this torrent of what was called in the 1960s radical black activism, but is now called Black Lives Matter, that he actually got mugged by reality, Irving Crystal style, into basically now he just seems to espouse only right-wing leaning views or like even neoliberal views, like in terms of the electoral politics, like he's like pro-Biden now. That's how contrarian he's gotten. So I, I almost feel sorry for him in a way because it's not just that he's you know he's he can be eloquent he can be articulate so he kind of like can be sort of act like he's sort of one of these brett weinsteiny eric weinsteiny guys and how fucked up is that that those two guys are are popular those two blatant frauds grifters i would guarantee you that brett weinstein was already looking at retirement from evergreen college he took that stand against that people of color day I think that he actually did it because he knew he could probably make a career on YouTube, which he has. He's probably making way more money now on YouTube and being a grifter than he was being a professor. And his brother? Talk about a fucking plant. He worked for Peter Thiel. Anyways, those two guys are basically, I described them the other day as being like a fucked up alternate universe version of me and Abby. That these two siblings are like these intellectual dark web, you know, celebrities or whatever. It's like Eric Weinstein has like literally no body of work. It's actually kind of mysterious and sus that this guy, this brother of Brett Weinstein who works for Peter Thiel and who knew Epstein, by the way, who met Epstein. He said it himself in videos. Eric Weinstein met Jeffrey Epstein. How this guy with no body of work who works for Peter Thiel, when Thiel was actually pumping all this money into right-wing pro-Trump media and all of a sudden this guy appears on the scene who works directly under Peter Thiel, to pump the same intellectual dark web bullshit, it's just, it's really sus. And it's an obvious grift. So back to Tracy for a second. It's one thing to just act like a Weinstein and, and write these like really articulate word salady tweets, being contrarian against anything left or left-wing thought or acting like the left is coming for you because they're authoritarian or whatever. But I think it's a whole other thing when you just have such a lack of vision in your attempt to be a contrarian, cookie-cutter, sort of Quillette moron, that you, like Michael Tracy, would literally rip a tweet directly from psychopath, right-wing grifter, and fraud Andy No. 
the guy who faked brain bleed after he got milkshakes thrown at him by Antifa. So I'm sorry if you're listening to this and you still take Michael Tracy's work seriously as a journalist. You know, that's fine. Respect whoever wants to listen to whoever. But uh, I, you're a lot more charitable than I if you have tolerance of the bullshit he's been on for this past month. Um, you know, speaking of these total grifters, and I see I, you know, Ian Miles Chong in a different category. I think he's a full-on grifter. And uh, apparently, this is what I was told, is that he actually bragged about getting someone's dog killed and swatting someone. So uh, I think it's fair to call this piece of shit a full-on Nazi. Uh, I don't care what his views on race are. When you start doing that to people in the political scene, uh, that's full-on fascism. You're a Nazi. Um, so fuck you. Yeah, uh, this piece of shit was inflaming people. And of course, Tim Pool and all these other people repeated the same talking points because they're grifters too. But by saying that these two protesters who got hit on the freeway in Seattle by a car were on the freeway when the freeway was open and they weren't supposed to be. So first, Ian Miles Chong was saying that this car couldn't see them and just hit them accidentally because they were blocking the freeway. Why do these idiots play in the road? You get what's coming to you. Uh, what he didn't say, what was already completely public knowledge at the time, was that the police actually shut down the freeway for the protesters, and the guy who entered the freeway must have been going the wrong way on the off-ramp. In what very much appeared to be some kind of cold-blooded attack or murder, um, the grifters who put out this story first totally lied about it. They omitted that, um, and then... They, you know, and then without even mentioning that at all, they just immediately jumped to, oh, and the guy was black. So what? You think this was some kind of attack on Black Lives Matter? So it just becomes a rhetorical game for these psychopaths. They don't care about the truth at all. So I really implore you, if you're still following people like this and actually like following them, thinking that they don't just put out disinfo constantly, you're fooling yourself. That's pretty much all that they do. Even if you're susceptible to that sort of anti-woke, you know, reactionary thinking, even if you're susceptible to that, follow people who are actually like truthful at the same time as being sort of reactionarily anti-woke. If you need to do it, I mean, I don't encourage it. There's people out there who aren't like total disinfo operators trying to rile people up like this piece of shit. I mean, I don't know how many people got wind of this, but Tucker Carlson's head writer of his show, who apparently wrote every word on Tucker's teleprompter for the past few years, uh, got fired or stepped down. I don't know the exact details, but he's he's gone from his show now. Um, he's gone from the position. Tucker Carlson's head writer is no longer in his position. He had to leave. And the reason he, I guess, had to leave is because he was caught posting on what was a forum that I didn't even know existed, which appears to be like Imagine 8chan for like Ivy League law school racists. That's basically what this fucking forum is. And it's like a private forum for these like piece of shit, like Ivy League people who I guess watch Tucker Carlson or love Tucker Carlson or whatever, who are in law school. And this guy, the head writer, had an account on this forum. He's actually very well respected on the forum. In fact, apparently a bunch of people on the forum knew he was Tucker Carlson's head writer. Posted a bunch of racist shit, and he posted in a bunch of racist threads. But actually, to me, one of the more creepy things that Tucker's head writer did, that to me really reveals something just really particularly disgusting 
about this culture, this sort of like right wing red pilled culture, the original red pilled, is just this like almost like stalkery, creepy misogyny that to me, I, I don't know anyone in my real life who thinks this way or who espouses these thoughts. And if I did, I would be disgusted with them. And I would actually think that they maybe had like done horrible, perverted sexual crimes of some kind. Like it, it to me, I, I, I know I say it will give me serial killer vibes, whatever, but like Tucker's head writer literally tracked and stalked from afar, a woman on his Facebook that I guess he went to high school with who he believed was overweight was past her prime all he did was just like mock her and make fun of her showing that he thought that she was pathetic and constantly posting private pictures from her facebook personal information and the woman when the news media you know told her about all this that tucker carlson's head writer was doing this she was just like confused and sort of horrified and, and just alarmed like disturbed and, you know, I had been on like forums, like even this like IDM forum, music forum that I was on many years ago. There were some creepier people from that forum who would do misogynist shit like that, where they would, they wouldn't like someone or maybe, I don't know what the deal was, but they would like center in on a particular person and like have the whole forum stock their sort of social media profile. And I remember just thinking it was like weird, really like in, it's like incel shit. I mean, that's what they would call it now. So this is like Tucker Carlson's head writer basically doing like incel shit. Man, this is the this is the show that's going to that you're going to hoist up as being like the best anti-war show on television. You're going to tell me that Tucker Carlson's fighting the deep state? His head writer's an incel? I mean, can we seriously cut the shit now? I mean, let's just please. Clearly, obviously, Tucker Carlson's program is some kind of op. Whether you want to call it a political op, to carry out Trump's agenda, or something more insidious like an intelligence agency limited hangout op. That's up to you. If you've been listening to this program for long, or even just for a few episodes, you probably already know how I feel about fraud Tucker Carlson. I made a documentary about neoconservatives, so apparently I'm supposed to appreciate the fact that Tucker Carlson mildly pushes back on neoconservative agendas sometimes. And Tucker's coverage... Contrary to what Glenn Greenwald and others want to say, on Venezuela was not good. It was obviously horrifying regime change garbage. He did maybe one or two segments total out of about two dozen segments where he allowed someone to express something that seemed like it was anti-regime change thought. Like the other 18 segments were like about overthrowing Maduro. And why we needed to let like a CIA-sponsored Juan Guaido, proto-Juan Guaido, like help overthrow Venezuela. He brought on the proto-Juan Guaido. He used to use Maduro as a counterexample to Assad all the time. Why are we overthrowing Assad when we should be overthrowing Maduro, he would say. I think it's really dangerous to try to whitewash this piece of shit. To try to whitewash what he's doing on his program just because... He said maybe one or two good things that you liked. It's dangerous to be doing that. And it's really dishonest. It's really, really dishonest. And it really does make me question why these people keep whitewashing this shit. To me, it's actually gone beyond just wanting to get on his show. It's actually gone to another level that's actually creeps me out more. And I'm like, dude, 
Are these people actually getting baited by right-wing populism as a real thing? Are they? Because I'm having a hard time explaining it just from needing clicks, just from needing the media exposure at this point. But wait, Robbie, we already know that Tucker is responsible for stopping a bombing in Syria and according to news reports. I mean, do we really know that? Can we actually trust that that's true? No, we can't trust that that's true. This is the son of Dick Carlson, who was the longest running head of the CIA State Department media arm Voice of America. Dick Carlson, who co-hosted a radio show for the Foundation for Defense of Democracies with a CIA spook. I, I don't, it's it just bizarre to me that people are, keep coming back at me with this idea that Tucker's doing good. There's no question about the fact that he's pushing neocon propaganda right now. He's trying to escalate some kind of war situation with China. So if you're just at this point cherry picking only one or two good things he says per week and then not mentioning any of the other shit, you're actually part of a complicit in some kind of op. And you kind of should fucking stop at this point. You're complicit. And I will fight against that bullshit. I mean, look at Tucker's recent stuff on China. It's nonstop neocon regime change propaganda. Disingenuous disinfo stuff from the a Committee on the Present Danger China, which has Gordon Chang, Steve Bannon, James Woolsey, Frank Gaffney in it. Steve Bannon was the guy who got this exclusive interview with this alleged whistleblower, Dr. Li Yang, who is uh, going around saying that the WHO and China both covered this up and hurt the world, COVID-19. Bannon was the one who found her. So now she's going to Fox News for an exclusive interview, and now Tucker is putting her video appearance with Bannon on his show as if it's some kind of valid whistleblower status. I mean, it can't get more, any more obvious than this. This is straight pipelined in neocon propaganda coming straight in from the Committee on the Present Danger China think tank that has several PNAC members as part of it. So I don't want to hear from anybody anymore that Tucker is anti-neocon. You're lying. If you, at this point, if you say that, you're a liar. And I have to question, why are you lying? Why are you doing it? Why? Can you just not admit you were wrong, you've been conned, you've been had, or are you actually part of this? So either way, you need to kind of wake the fuck up. This is getting really dangerous and really serious. The escalations against China are no laughing matter. The Nation just ran an article saying, A new Gulf of Tonkin in the making? It talks about how Trump's military maneuvers in the so-called South China Sea have escalated things to a situation that they, that they hasn't been since 1945. The Nation author who wrote this article describes it as, it seems like the Trump administration is trying to start a provocation in another Gulf of Tonkin incident. Eli Lake, who is an untrustworthy neocon, released an article in Bloomberg saying Trump wants to turn China into Iran that the U.S. is trying to turn China into the new Iran. Now, Eli Lake is a pathological liar, cut out for propaganda and various leaks, but Eli Lake actually is close to some of these psychopath neocons. And if he's saying this is the case, I would take him at his word, that the maneuvers, you can see them all on paper too. You don't need to take Eli Lake's word for it. This is a rare instance where he's right, that Trump administration is trying to sanction and demonize China 
into the same status Iran is. FBI Director Christopher Wray appeared at the Hudson Institute, which is a neocon think tank that sort of, you know, pretends like it's populist right or whatever these rebranders want to try to do. Christopher Wray said that half of all the counterintelligence cases they do are against Chinese espionage. That's what he said at the Hudson Institute. Not a peep from anybody who constantly talked about Comey's Russia hysteria. You know, just this went totally under the radar. Well, this is the active FBI director, and he's claiming, which is an obvious lie, that half of counterintelligence investigations they do are against China. So just a little tangent about the Hudson Institute really quickly, is that there's another very popular, rising in popularity, no pun intended, show that espouses this populist right paradigm. In fact, it actually espouses a, a more broad paradigm that the populist left and the populist right shall work together. Now, Nathan J. Robinson of Current Affairs um, wrote an article saying, what is the populist right exactly? Isn't it just fascism? Why is this show encouraging the left to work with basically fascists? And that's sort of been an old argument that I think is actually still mostly true. But I think what I'd like to examine with this show and, and the, actually specifically the co-hosts, Sagur and Jetty, is that he is a Hudson Institute media fellow who works uh, under Vice Chairman Scooter Libby at the Hudson Institute. And he actually was doing the same kind of grift in terms of a right populist, left populist sort of alignment thing as a podcast for the Hudson Institute called The Realignment. So it's just taking the same thing to this new outlet, which is a right-wing outlet called The Hill, funded by right-wing people, creating that same paradigm on the show. And this show is also similarly, I think, having the same effect on a lot of people that I described earlier that Tucker's program is having. It seems like it's doing good because it's sort of bridging the gap between left and the right. I think when you watch it, any of the stuff they say about China is very, very much straight pipelined in from a neoconservative think tank. And it's some of it's probably being pipelined in straight from the Hudson Institute because that's where he works as a media fellow. Some of it's probably being piped in from the Committee on the Present Danger, just like it is in Tucker's show. Some of it's probably even being piped in by people from the Washington Times, like Bill Gertz. I don't know for sure. But... There's almost nothing on the program that's in reference to China that's not neocon propaganda. And I think that's very striking because the co-host is supposed to be there to rebut against the right-wing propaganda to sort of portray a left position. But she doesn't at all when it comes to the China stuff. It's almost non-existent. It's just him blasting out all these neocon scripts on China and almost no rebuttal whatsoever. So there is an op being ran there, uh, trying to escalate the situation with China and raise the stakes. That's what that is. And the fact that Christopher Ray would choose the Hudson Institute to drop this breaking news at that half of the counterintelligence cases they deal with are against China is very notable. It shows what kind of audience is at the Hudson Institute. He knows that by going in there, saying that, it's a good pipeline. That's, it's, a, it's a real strong pipeline for that neocon message on China. Oh, but you'll say Trump's people aren't neocons. These are just hawks. You know, the neocons are Bill Crystal and Robert Kagan and, you know, blah, blah, blah. No. 
I, I don't subscribe to that paradigm. To me, anyone who is part of PNAC is a neocon, will forever be a neocon for as long as they live. It doesn't matter how they've tried to rebrand themselves, what splits and directions they've taken. Every single one of those psychopaths who signed those letters is a neocon for life. Just like if you kill someone, you're a murderer for life. You're a neocon for life. I don't care for people trying to make these nuanced arguments to just cleverly you know, reinforce that paradigm that the neocons are all against Trump and Trump versus the neocons. It's a false paradigm. A lot of what I've been trying to tell you on this podcast for years is that it's, it's clearly not the case. Some of these neocons are pro-Trump. Frank Gaffney is pro-Trump. Michael Ledeen is pro-Trump. Is Richard Pearl pro-Trump? Is he anti-Trump? I don't know. But if you don't know if he's pro or anti-Trump, then you can't say that all the neocons are anti-Trump. That would be false. So people need to stop falling into that paradigm. I guess just some more stuff just to really explain to you guys how serious this is, is that Pompeo basically said that he declared that the South China Sea or then the islands that China lays claim to are not theirs. So that's how high the stakes have already been raised is that he's already, there's already like a territorial dispute declared by the United States. They've taken that rhetoric to the level of like making an official declaration of it. Mike Pompeo actually also sanctioned four top-level Chinese officials over a completely disingenuous, phony concerns for the Uyghur population in China. I mean, once you hear Frank Gaffney talking about Uyghurs and why they're important, you know that how disingenuous this is. This is where we're at with the situation with China. We're also getting this bizarro world where New Tang Dynasty TV, an anti-China Falun Gong-funded TV program, TV network, that's also received U.S. tax money because the Falun Gong received U.S. tax money. It gets added to U.S. cable packages all around the country. So now we have not just Epoch, Epic Times being delivered to people's doorsteps all over the country. Now we have New Tang Dynasty TV, which is basically another pipeline for the same neocon think tank I've been telling you about, the Committee on the Present Danger China, gets its own TV channel. And, you know, it's just pathetic, too, when it's like the QAnon people, they just all espouse these Chi-Com conspiracies and anti-China stuff, too, all the time. You know, just like when they were told to go anti-Iran, the QAnoners went neocon on Iran, they're going neocon on China now. QAnon does push a lot of anti-China stuff about the WHO and stuff. And a lot of QAnoners are good little parrots. They'll repeat whatever they're told. And, you know, some of these people that I saw on video at a grilled cheese restaurant doing a protest against masks were screaming as cops were pulling people away saying, this is not communist China. This is America. It's like, okay, we got you. I know where you're coming from. <laughs> Also, just, uh, you know, I talked with Danny Haifong a couple episodes ago about hate crimes against Asian Americans and how they're on the rise since COVID-19 and they're not getting very much attention in the media. There was something that a uh, listener brought to my attention, which is the Chinese massacre of 1871. They describe it as a quote unquote, a race riot. But basically what it was, was there was a shootout between, I think, some Chinese men who were living in L.A., and when the police got involved and someone else got involved who happened to be white, they got shot. 
in the crossfire that kicked off like basically a series of lynchings and beatings and murders like vigilante murders in the city um, by white police you know people who were already didn't like chinese immigrants and the, according to records it was between 17 and 20 people killed during the chinese massacre october 24th 1871 in la it was i guess at the time it was the first like major la riot of any kind was this event so i guess i'll just end this broadcast i mean i feel like i've just been ranting and raving about a whole bunch of different random things but let's just end uh end the podcast with talking about our our favorite person donald trump who essentially waged a war on the left and the entire left protest movement at mount rushmore on his fourth of july speech i don't know what's going on with him but he seems like he has some kind of physical brain ailment he you cannot talk properly he trailed off so many times trying to actually finish a sentence during his speech that I just was like, what is happening to him? The fuck? He used the term far-left fascism, and the whole time he's been calling Nancy Pelosi a radical leftist and all the shit. It's like, it, it does at a certain point become the boy who cried wolf. Yeah, some of your your supporters and scared ones are going to get more and more scared and they're going to, you know, that kind of stuff will work on them. They'll get more fear-mongered. But I think at a, for the most part, it's like you can't for keep calling everybody like radical leftists forever. At a certain point, it just loses its effectiveness. And even when Trump said far-left fascism, I mean, yes, it is scary on a certain level that the president is desperately using rhetoric this extreme. But I also think it shows weakness too. It shows that he's not, he isn't not getting the effect from it that he wants. Even if he just wants people to be afraid, even that is kind of muted. People are worried about their own shit right now. People are worried about not getting sick. What are they going to do to eat, to survive? How are they going to pay for their kids' college now? I mean, there's all these things that people are thinking about. So the idea that, I mean, how many conservatives are really that fixated on these statues being knocked down even probably only the ones that watch a lot of fox news and go on facebook and listen to am talk radio i mean got to be some conservative out there who just don't aren't plugged in and they just don't care that much maybe they really hate black lives matter and think it's racist or whatever to them but, or you know i just think trump is actually kind of spinning out and it's interesting to watch because I feel like really all he has left at this point is something as crazy as pulling out Q or some kind of actual activating the U.S. Army, like something genuinely fascist like that. I guess right now, other than the fact that he just seems to be desperate, he's boring me right now. I'll give him points for being somewhat funny at that ridiculously weird rally where he acted like drinking a glass of water was important where he's like the media tries to give me diseases and then they invented another disease it was it was entertaining just to watch him like riffing and sounding like a totally insane i mean it was entertaining from the perspective of i can't believe this is our president this is crazy i still can't get used to this how is this happening when you're watching it you are kind of like that's that was my feeling while watching it. It's like a heightened state, so it is entertaining. But all the other times he's appeared to the press recently and talked, answered questions or whatever, 
he's come off as just incredibly boring. He doesn't seem very sure of what his vision is moving forward with the presidency, other than this sort of anti-waging war against the, the left and BLM or whatever. I don't know. He just seemed boring right now. And I, and I guess I'm, I shouldn't be wishing for him to be more exciting because that might mean actual scary and dangerous things, but punch it up, dude. You're a fucking dolt right now. What the fuck? I guess that's where I'll end the podcast. Thank you again for listening to Media Roots Radio. As always, uh, if you want to get access to all our exclusive content, including our one time a month bonus episode, one out of every four episodes we release will be bonus episode for our patrons only. If you want to get access to that, you can donate to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Radio for as little as $5 a month. And stay tuned for two more episodes coming out in July. And yeah, check my Twitter at Fluorescent Gray if you want more information about what those episodes are going to be. I'll probably preview them there. Take care, everybody.